Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 9? If you're new with us, we're going through 1 Samuel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, last week we were in chapter 8. And when we were in chapter 8, we saw how the people of Israel wanted a king to rule over them so that they could be like the other nations. So they came to Samuel, and Samuel went to the Lord, and the Lord told Samuel to tell the people what having an earthly king over there, them was going to mean. Samuel tried to warn them that a man ruling over them as king, well, that kingdom or that government would be far inferior to God ruling over them as their king. In fact, as we studied last week, an earthly king would basically make them the slaves of government. But the people didn't want to hear it, and so in verse 19 of chapter 8 we read, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. That brings us to chapter 9. And there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Appiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. The Hebrew is a mighty man of wealth, which of course brings power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. Now, I want you to notice how the Holy Spirit makes it a point to tell us about Saul's physical features. Basically, he was tall, dark, and handsome, is the idea. Um, why does the Holy Spirit make it a point to point out Saul's physical attributes? Because he was the kind of leader the people really wanted. They didn't want a man of character, integrity, wisdom. No, they wanted a guy that looked good, okay? A guy that possessed certain outward attributes. Guys, this is how the world chooses its leaders. Later on, when God gives the nation David, see, God gives them right now a man after their heart. Later, as Saul proves to be a disaster, he tells Samuel to go ahead and anoint the next king. And when he goes to the house of Jesse, he sees Jesse's sons, the firstborn Eliab, good-looking kid, strong, handsome, so on. And Samuel says in his heart, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And God speaks to him and says, Samuel, he's not my choice. Man looks at the outward appearance, the height, the stature, but God looks upon the heart. And so God gave them a man after his heart, David. This is especially true in our society, especially since the advent of television. People today basically think with their eyes. We have become a visual society. People think with their eyes instead of with their heads. And uh, many choose leaders based on looks and charisma rather than on character. That's become a real problem in our country. But we pick it up in verse 3 again. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please, take one of the servants with you. Arise and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalasha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, Look now, 
There is in this city a man of God. He is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here in my hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us the way. Now he mentions, the author mentions that formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of the Lord God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go see the seer. For he was now called a prophet, was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill, they met some young women going out to draw water. And they said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, Yes, he is here just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to this city because there is a, a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore go up, for about this time you will find him. So they went up to the city. And as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Now, as we read the text, it's obvious the theme God is uh, putting forth here is that God is giving Israel the king they wanted. That's the obvious the theme of this passage. And from a historical perspective, it's good for us to know, as students of God's word, and of course, as we are concerned about Israel and their history and all, it's good for us to know Saul was going to be the next king. Of course, that does nothing for us in this room, in walking with God and so on. Uh, it's good to know, obviously, but it does nothing to affect our personal lives. And yet, guys, there is an underlying principle woven throughout the passage that does affect our walk with God. You see, I see in this passage the intersecting of God's sovereignty and man's free will. And in particular, how God uses everyday circumstances to lead our lives in the paths that he has chosen for us. Look, Saul's father's donkeys got lost, and so he sends Saul and another servant out to look for them. They go from town to town, area to area, city to city, looking for these donkeys. They can't find them anywhere. They finally wind up in the city where Samuel has come to visit, verse 6. But not only that, they wound up on the same path that Samuel himself was on. Verse 12, oh yeah, he's right up ahead of you. Hurry up, you'll catch him. So God brings Saul and uh, Samuel together. Both of them were doing whatever they believed they needed to do. And yet God was really bringing the whole circumstance together so that they would meet one another. Coincidence? Well, skeptics would say yes. Children of God say no. You see, we know that God often leads our lives through everyday circumstances that have been supernaturally ordained by him. It's called providence, guys providence. 
Providence is a word that speaks of how God leads our lives supernaturally, but in natural ways. Again, Saul was looking for his father's donkeys. On farms, livestock wander away all the time. Nothing unusual about that. Now, I believe that God led those donkeys away. I believe that God led those donkeys wherever he led them. They were, if you're here from Peter, they were eventually found. Just if you're worried about the donkeys. They were eventually found, okay? But God took them away somewhere, hit them, all right? And that caused Saul to have to go look for them. All in God's plan. God wanted to move Saul from point A to point B. Of course, at the time, Saul didn't know what was going on. He didn't realize this ordinary, everyday problem. No doubt donkeys and sheep and other animals had wandered away all the time from his father's uh, flocks and herds. And Saul didn't realize at the time that this ordinary, everyday problem was supernaturally orchestrated by God to bring him to Samuel. And then even before Saul and his companion got to Samuel, God told Samuel the day before, verse 16, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come to me. Now you see it, guys? As Saul was going on his way, going about an ordinary task, God was leading him. It reminds me very much of something we studied last Wednesday. We studied Genesis chapter 24. And uh, if you were with us, you remember how that at one point, Abraham told his eldest servant, Eliezer, to go to the land of Mesopotamia. That's where Abraham was from. That's where a lot of his family still lived. He said, go to Mesopotamia and choose a bride for my son Isaac. I don't want him to have a pagan bride from the Canaanites. I want you to go to Mesopotamia, pick him out a, a bride. So Eliezer takes 10 camels, some other servants, and they make the 500 mile journey, about two months, to Mesopotamia. He gets into town, uh, the town of Nahor. That uh, was the name of his, uh, Abraham's brother. So they, this was a town he probably founded. He comes into town at evening time, right about the time the gals go out to draw water from the well. And he sits down by the well and he prays, just to himself in his heart, and says, Lord, I pray that you've prospered my journey. So much so that the first gal that comes out to draw water if I ask her for a drink, I pray, Lord, if she's the one, she will say, yes, here's my pitcher. Drink as much as you want, and I will go water your 10 camels, too. Now, look, okay, giving a guy a drink of water, a stranger, that's not a big deal, right? If she wouldn't even do that, eh, cross her off the list, she's too selfish for Isaac to have a wife, to be his wife. But if she's willing to water the camels, drink a lot of water, as we talked about Wednesday. For a young gal to say, look, you take as much water to drink for yourself as you want, and I'll water your ten camels, wow, that's saying something, okay? That would have to be the one God was, had chosen. And so the first gal that comes out, he runs over, to, she gets some water, he runs over to her, says, please, can I have a drink of water? She says, oh, absolutely, here, take as much as you want, let me water your ten camels too. He says, wow, praise your Lord. He just, he just says in verse 26, he bowed his head and worshipped the Lord, of Genesis 24, and then he said, Blessed, listen, be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Notice again the intersection of God's sovereignty and man's free will. As for me, Eliezer said, being what? On the way, going about my business, the Lord led me. 
Look, guys, it's not God's sovereignty or man's free will, as others are always arguing about today. It's God's sovereignty and man's free will. They work together. Although, listen to me very carefully. This is an important point I have to make. God's plans are never subject to or limited by man's free will. God is God. And yet, God never violates man's free will either. See, I don't get that. Well, someday it'll all be clear. When the trumpet sounds, the angel shouts that we're made like him, all of a sudden, Boeing, I get it. I get it. All right? Until that time, suffice it to say, we serve an awesome God. And he is such an awesome God, he has the ability to take all the free will of all the people in this world, knowing what they're going to do, weaving it into his ultimate plan so that it all works out exactly the way he wants, and man's free will is never violated. It's amazing, isn't it? But I want you to just understand that I see in the past is the intersection of man's free will and God's sovereignty. They work together. Solomon said this in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 9. He said, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, when it comes to determining God's will for our lives, <laughs> a moving object is easier to direct than one stuck in the mud, right? So if you're out there serving the Lord... It's going to be easier for God, if I can put it that way. Nothing is hard for him. But I'm just saying, for the sake of our understanding, if you're out there serving God and doing what he is, wants you to do, it will be easier for him to direct your life than if you're stuck in the mud. What does that mean? Well, if you're just, you know, lazy, people say, I want God's will. But they don't want to ever do anything to seek God's will. Or they're stuck in the mud in the sense that they're living in moral compromise, disobedience. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. A good man implies a man or a woman who is saved and living in obedience to what God has already revealed in his word. That's what makes them good. We're only good through the blood of Christ, but good in the practical sense in that we're walking in the spirit. We're obeying what God has said. We're not living in sin. And as we are walking or living our lives that way, God will then direct us in the perfect will he has for our lives. Now, look, when we talk about God leading our lives, guiding our lives, having a plan for our lives, I personally don't think that God wants to micromanage our lives. What do I mean? I really don't think God cares what you eat for breakfast, unless it's something really bad for you. I really don't think God cares what you wear to work, as long as it's, something, it's not something immoral or improper. I don't think you have to pray about what color socks you need to wear uh, any given day. God says, choose your own socks, okay? You want to dress with ugly socks, that's up to you. Uh, whatever you want to wear, I don't care about that. But I do believe he wants to lead our lives in the areas that affect us in substantive ways. I do believe he wants to lead us in those matters. Peter said that God wants us to cast, listen, all our cares on him because he deeply cares about us as his children. How much does he care about us? Well, Jesus said that God knows the number of the hairs on each of our heads. Now, why would Jesus say that? Because he wants us to realize if God is that concerned about the smallest matters of our life, how many hairs we have on our head. It takes the time to count the hairs. And that count has to be adjusted every time you brush your hair. And if God keeps doing that and keeping track of those hairs... Don't you think he cares about who you marry, what job you take, what ministry you get involved in? You say, well, obviously. But you know what, guys? To some people, it's not obvious. 
because I have heard teachings, in fact, they've kind of gotten more popular uh, over the last few years, by teachers and preachers and so on who are telling us that God doesn't have a personal will for our lives. He doesn't have an individual will for Don't ask him to lead you in what job to take or who to marry. He's not involved in our lives on that level. Just as long as you're obeying the Ten Commandments and staying out of sin, you can choose to marry whoever you want, take whatever job you want, get involved in any ministry you want, because God is not involved in that, those areas of our lives. Really. Let me read you a few scriptures. You can just write the references down. I'll read them to you. God is not interested or concerned about leading my life in everyday things. Jeremiah 10, verse 23. Oh, Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't depend on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Bring him into every decision, and he will direct your paths. How about Psalm 143, verse 8? The psalmist said, Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, when I should start my day with the Lord. For in you do I trust. Listen. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. And I'll give you one more. Ephesians 2, verse 10. I'll read it out of the Amplified. For we are God's own handiwork, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that we may do those good works which God predestined, or in other words, planned beforehand for us taking paths which he prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them. I don't know about you, but it seems pretty obvious from just the few we've read of Scripture that God wants to lead us. In fact, I don't know the way I should go. I must seek God. I must... And he will direct my path because he wants to lead my life. But he won't lead my life against my free will. Now, if my heart is open to him, he will lead me even when I don't realize he's leading me. Because the steps of a good man or woman are ordered by the Lord. So you say, well, okay, why well, you convince me? Scripture is obvious that God doesn't have a specific or a personal plan for my life. Which would include things like who to marry and what job to take, what ministry to be involved in, you know, and other important life decisions. So you say, but how can I know what it is? In other words, as I'm living my life and making decisions, how can I know what his will is for me? That is a very basic and important question to the Christian life. Years ago, I read a, a something by F.B. Meyer, a great man of God, F.B. Meyer, who told the story of how one starless night, he was crossing the Irish Channel on a ship, and as he was crossing the Irish Channel, he stood on this deck of this ship, and the captain was standing right next to him. And he said to the captain, Captain, how do you know where the narrow channel is that leads into Holyhead Harbor? It's so dark out here, you can't see anything. And the captain said to him, You see those three lights? They are channel markers. All of them must line up together as one. And when we see them so united, we know the exact position of the harbor's mouth. I like to build on that little illustration. And I'd like to expand it a little bit. So there are three things that we can use as markers to determine God's will. How about we use six? Six markers. Now look, not all of these things have to line up for every decision. That's true. But certainly the more important the decision, the more we will want most, if not all of them, to line up. If we're going to find the will of God for our lives, especially in important decisions, life decisions, you don't want to run aground. Okay? You don't want to run your ship aground using the illustration from F.B. Meyer, okay? 
God has got a course set in for us. We don't want to waver from it. We want to make sure we are lined up exactly with what his will is for our lives. How do we know that? What are the markers? Well, I'll give you the first one. The first principle for knowing the will of God is a definite conviction or a burden in your heart. That God wants you to take a certain course of action to do a certain thing or to go to a certain place. And we have to be careful here, guys. That's true. Because in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the Lord says, The heart, the human heart, is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we have to be careful here. We can't just trust impulses or inner voices by themselves to help us determine God's will. First of all, that inner voice might just simply be my own imagination. In Jeremiah 23, God invited, uh, excuse me, not invited, he indicted, I should say, the false prophets of Israel who are running around saying, thus says the Lord. And God says, I haven't sent them. I'm not speaking through them. They're speaking lies, the imagination of their own heart. I'm sure they thought they were speaking from God. But that's the problem. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Often, we want to do something so badly, we start hearing voices telling us to do it. And we're thinking, oh, it must be God. You know, I'm getting that burning in the bosom or, you know, getting that feeling. Well, that's all well and fine if it's really a conviction that's a good place to start but you need more it could be just the imagination of your own heart it might be the devil trying to mess with you get you off in a wrong direction remember peter thought he was speaking on behalf of the father when he told jesus not to go to the cross far be it from you lord to go to the cross you can't go to the cross you got to establish the kingdom and what did jesus say get behind me satan at that moment it wasn't the father speaking through peter it was the devil and that happens a lot we think maybe God is speaking to us about something, and really the devil is just trying to misdirect us. And sometimes it is the still small voice of God, as Elijah found out when he was running from Jezebel down to the wilderness, holds up in a cave, and God says, what are you doing here? Go outside, I'm going to speak to you. You remember the story, there was a fire that raced through the canyon, and strong winds that rolled rocks down the canyon and broke them in pieces, and, and Elijah said the Lord wasn't in the fire, or he wasn't in the wind. And then a still, small voice. God often speaks in those still, small voices. We have to be listening. So look, conviction in your heart is a good place to start, but you need further confirmation from the Holy Spirit when it comes to making important life decisions. And that brings us to the second principle for knowing the will of God. And that is, listen, guys, very important. Nothing can be the will of God that is contrary to the Word of God. Period. The God who is leading your life now, listen is the same God who inspired the Bible then. And consequently, nothing can be the will of God for your life that conflicts with his word. And that would include marrying an unbeliever. You know, so many times, well, not so many times, but there have been times when I've had a young person say to me, they're a Christian and they are wanting to marry an unbeliever. And they'll come to me as their pastor and say, you know, I believe God has brought this person into my life and I believe God wants me to marry this person. Yes, but they're an unbeliever. God's word clearly says, don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Well, I know it says that, but God spoke to me and said, I'm to marry this person. It's going to be fine. I said, well, look, God doesn't say something in his word and says, but for you, there's an exception. Or you have special dispensation so that you don't have to abide or obey what he has said in this area. If you're thinking about doing something that God has said not to do, God has not told you to do it. He's not speaking to you. It's the devil or the imagination of your own heart because you want it so bad that it's not the Lord. 
I even heard a story years ago about a young mother, married, had two small children, and she believed that God was leading her to leave her family to go onto the mission field. As I'm listening to the story, I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. God would never tell you to break your vow, your commitment to your husband, abandon your small children to go into the mission field. If he wanted you there, he'd have the whole family, send the whole family with you, and the husband would have to be the one to really be the last one to make the decision because he's the leader of the family, as God's word points out. But she was convinced that God wanted her to leave her family and go off to the mission field without them. Cindy was doing a retreat a few years ago. And after she taught, a woman came up to her and told her that, of course, she was a Christian, she said. And she said that my husband and my teenage kids are all unbelievers. And they like to watch programs like Friends on TV. And it's really beginning to bother me. And I prayed about it. And the Lord told me to leave them and start hanging out with more spiritual people. And so he said, well, God's word says that you are to honor the commitment you made to your husband and your children, of course. You're not to bail on them. That's not God's will that you bail on them. But she wouldn't receive that. She got very upset. Because in her mind, God told her. Well, if it contradicts what God has said in his word, God hasn't told you. That might be your imagination speaking to you because you're having trouble with the situation you want out. Doesn't mean it's God's will, though. Number three, third marker, is also just as important. It's the principle of staying close to the Lord in your daily life. Now, we've talked about Psalm 32, verse 8, where the psalmist said, God speaking, said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Of course, God went on to say in Psalm 32, don't be like the stupid horse or the dumb mule that won't do what their master wants unless they have a bit and bridle in their mouth and the master yanks on it and inflicts pain in the mouth of the animal to direct it. God says, I don't want to direct your life through painful circumstances. I want you to be so close to me that you're looking right at me in a sense, and perfect fellowship is the idea. So that like when somebody wants to direct you, you know, you're in a room and there's something going on and you're looking right at the person, but they don't want to say, go look over there. So you're looking at them and they just go, you know, just move their eyes. You know what they're trying to do. They're trying to get you to look over there. They're wanting to direct you in a subtle way to look in that direction. God says, I want to direct your life that way too, just with my eyes, in the sense that, you know, you're in such close fellowship with me. As soon as I begin to give you the direction, boy, you're wanting to go. I mean, clearly, if God is going to guide us with his eye, <laughs> he must first catch our eye. And this means we have to be looking to him constantly throughout our day. As the Lord is leading us, uh, as we're going about our business, that we're constantly open to the leading of the Holy Spirit to redirect us, maybe. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Of course, staying, staying close with the Lord implies you're staying in fellowship with God's people. You're coming to church. You're in the Word. You're in communion with God through prayer. You know, there are people that don't go to church, don't read the Word, and then they wonder what God's will is for their life because He's not talking to me. Well, you have not because you asked not. Are you, are you praying? Are you asking Him? But even then, if you want God to lead your personal life, then you have to bring him into your personal life. There are Christians who go throughout their day and don't think of God one time. That's a problem. Number four, in determining the will of God, always check your motives in making any important decision. Is Jesus at the center of it or is self at the center of this decision? Again, what is your motive for, we'll say, taking that big promotion? Is it to use your new position to be a brighter and more visible witness for Jesus? 
Or was the prestige and the higher salary the driving motivation in your decision? And I've seen more than a few people say, you know, yeah, well, you know, I just believe God gave me this job to bless me and my family. Okay. Uh, how many hours are you got to put in? Oh, about 70. You working on Sundays? Yeah, yeah, got to work on Sunday. How about during the week? You going to be able to come to Bible study anymore? No, won't be able to come to Bible study anymore. Oh, I see. That's really God's will. That you work, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, take you away from church, away from the Lord, away from the fellowship of the saints. And you work so many hours that your family never sees you so that you finally wind up losing your family. That's not God's will. You know, I've talked to several guys who started businesses over the years and their businesses began to prosper as they honored God and do what he wanted. But then, of course, as the business prospered, they started getting greedy. They started working more hours. They started working on Sundays. They started missing Bible study. So they were out of fellowship with God. And then because they worked so many hours, they wound up losing their family and their business also. Many of them today don't even have their business. God took it away. And in the process, they lost their wife and kids because they left this guy because he was working all these never home. A few years ago, I was teaching on a Sunday morning. And the um, passage we were in happened to deal with the being content with whatever God gives you. Afterwards, this guy, who owned a very successful business, asked if he could speak to me. He was upset because he believed God had spoken to him about quadrupling the size of his business. In my teaching, he said, now it was making him feel guilty. He was upset about that, that I would, you know, that because of what I taught today, now he was feeling guilty about doing what he believed God wanted him to do. And I said, look, <laughs> I'm not your Lord. If God has told you to quadruple the size of your business, then by all means do it. But you better make sure God's talking. You better make sure God's leading you. Because you make good money, you have, live in a beautiful house, you have several beautiful cars, you go on nice vacations. What's the point? Okay, how much money do you need? But I'm not going to tell you how much money to make. I'm just saying, make sure that you've really prayed about this because a lot of men think that God is talking about expanding their business and really what it is is greed. And it winds up destroying their marriage, destroying their family, and many of them, as I just said, wind up losing the business itself. Be careful. Number five, in determining God's will, do the circumstances indicate that God is leading you? Look, as you pray about an important decision, keep looking for open or closed doors. Now, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians, reminding them of how when he got there, he said, a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So God opened for Paul a door to minister there in Corinth. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul said, meanwhile praying also for us that God would open a door to us uh, for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. So Paul was the kind of person who was always wanting God to open a door. He was always wanting God to direct him because Paul figured if God's working and he's preparing hearts and he's, you know, if, if he's been working in an area, I want to know where that area is because now the people are ready for the gospel. Now, in Acts chapter 16, uh, when Luke is recording Paul's missionary journey as he's moving across uh, Asia Minor, this would be his second missionary journey, 
and uh, talks about how they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of God did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. And later, Paul's writing about this to the Corinthians. He said, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. What was that door? Well, Paul had come from the east. He was moving from the east across Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And at one point, he decides, I'm going to go north with the gospel, but the Holy Spirit forbid him. Then he says, I'm going to go south, but the Holy Spirit stopped him. You say, how? I don't know. I don't know. But somehow, the Holy Spirit was closing doors, right? Finally, he gets to Troas on the coast of the Aegean, and he has a vision one night, a man of Macedonia saying, Paul, come on over here and help us. So Paul says, there was my open door. Jumped on a ship, crossed the Aegean, and brought the gospel to Europe for the first time. Look, Paul bounced off a couple of closed doors, didn't he? This idea that I can just do whatever I want as long as I'm not living in sin. No, it doesn't seem that that's how Paul's life was led. He was on the move, so he was moving. But he was sensitive to where the Spirit was directing. Tries to go north, bounces off a closed door. Tries to go south, bounces off another closed door. Finally found the open door straight ahead to the west. An open door, guys, would be favorable circumstances suddenly coming across your path where God seems to be saying to you, this is the way, this is the path, walk in it. I've told you guys about our wanting to get on radio. Of course, for years, I mean, I never thought about being on radio because it was expensive and we were just a small church. We're still a small church. And every year as we, uh, as we close the books out for the previous year to start the new fiscal year, we always broke about even. We, we, we didn't have any surplus in the bank, really. We just, after we paid our bills, we always were breaking out just about even. And radio was expensive. I had a guy come to the church and said, why don't you go on the radio? I'm like, radio? First of all, it's expensive. I don't think, uh, you know, we've never even thought about radio. Well, I kind of think God might be in it. Would you mind if I set up a, a meeting with one of the radio execs? Because I know them. I can set up a meeting and see if you guys want to do it. I said, well, I'm open to anything, Okay. So he sets up this meeting, and they had one slot left, just one 15-minute slot. And it was going to cost us about 30000 for the year. 30000 for the year? I mean, where are we going to get $30,000? But we figured, Lord, if you're in this, if this is a door you're opening, you're going to have to take care of it. So we started praying. I don't know, a few days later, maybe a week. And we hadn't told anybody. Just the elders and myself were praying. You know, a few days later, we get uh, an envelope in the mail from a couple that had gone to our church a few years earlier, but were now in England. They know nothing about the radio. They opened the envelope, it was a check for $10,000. Now some churches get checks for $10,000 every week. We don't. That was unusual. And I thought, hmm, I don't know, Lord, you might be in this thing. So we figured, hey, you know, the Lord... Seems like he's leading us. He's opening the door. So we decided to take a step in faith. But we were still pretty nervous, okay? It's a big step in faith. Then about two weeks after that, we get another check from somebody who didn't know what was going on. Because we never announced it. We never said, okay, now come on. We need you to give. Hey, where God guides, he provides, right? So we just prayed. And we get another check in the mail for the balance of the whole year. Well, now you know God must be in this thing, right? We never get that kind of money in that short a period of time. God was saying, no, this is the right way. He opened the door. He confirmed it through our circumstances. And you've all got stories, I'm sure, 
of how God led you in similar ways. Let me tell you about a closed door, though. Many years ago, when we first got saved, Cindy and I got saved with two other couples who were all friends, hung out. We all got saved together. And we couldn't find a church initially, so Sundays we would come together and just talk about the Lord all day long. Read the Bible, share, it was great, okay? Well, at one point, one of the couples felt like God was wanting them to move, or they, I don't know if it was God. They, they might have said it was God. I know they wanted to go to California. And um, they put their house up for sale. There was an offer in the house. They were all excited. We're going to California. Fell through. A little later, another person put an offer in the house. Okay, here we go. That fell through. A third time, someone made an offer. That fell through. About this time, the wife threw a tantrum. And she said, God, you don't love us. You don't care about us. Here we want to go out to California and blah, 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 but Lord, you don't, you know, you're, and she just threw a hissy fit and she just, you know, blamed God and you're not loving God and blah, blah, blah. Three days later, another offer came in the household immediately. Went out to California. He got involved in a band, started seeing other women. Their marriage ended. And today, I don't think either one of them are walking with the Lord. When God closes the door, you'd be wise to respect that and get redirected by him. You want to kick the door open, you can do that, but I don't think it's very wise at all. If God's will is perfect for our lives, what are we doing kicking closed doors open? Because then we're settling for something less than his best, and in some cases, something very bad. All because we want to run the show. Don't do that. And finally, number six when you're trying to determine God's will, look for confirmation of some kind from the scriptures. From the scriptures. Something that the Holy Spirit shows you that seems like it's a clear message from God trying to direct you. Now, we've all had times when we were praying about something and maybe doing our morning devotions one day, and all of a sudden the scripture jumped out that we had read a hundred times before. All of a sudden it jumped off the page, and it was brand new. And it was exactly what we needed to hear about this decision. I know that many times God has used other Christians who didn't even know what a person was praying about, who came to that person and said, you know, in my devotions this morning, I was reading, the Lord told me to give you this scripture. I don't know why, but here it is. You read the scripture and go, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I've been praying about. So God can and will use other Christians to confirm his will, but listen to me, don't ever, ever let another Christian make an important life decision for you. They can be used to get you to start thinking in a certain direction. Okay? I think God wants you to go to Africa. Really? Okay, well, let me pray about that. And then, you know, if the door is open or closed, okay, now you're thinking, you're praying about it, right? But never let somebody come to you and say, look, I think God wants you to go to Africa. Africa, really? Well, you're pretty spiritual. Okay, I guess I'll go to Africa. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. God will never direct your life on, in an important decision solely on the input of another. They might get you thinking in that direction. They might be used to confirm what God's already speaking to your heart about. But look, God has got to confirm it to you personally. Got to confirm it to you personally. And remember this. The Bible says, He who believes shall not make what? Haste. If God wants to lead you in an important decision, He'll give you time to pray about it. You don't have a window of opportunity that's closing quickly. You've got to make a quick decision because the opportunity will be lost. No. God will give you time to pray. It's the devil that wants you to make a quick decision. 
Because then he can, you know, get you to rush it where you don't pray, and then he can misdirect you. Don't ever rush into an important decision. You take time to pray. As I said at the beginning of this study, all these markers don't have to line up with every decision. But certainly, the more important the decision, the more you're going to want to wait for God to give you enough markers so that his will becomes clear, listen, beyond a reasonable doubt. And I say that because there are some Christians that let fear of making a mistake paralyze them into inaction where they're afraid to make any decision for fear they are going to step out of God's will and bring upon themselves terrible consequences. Let me assure you that God wants to lead your life more than you want him to lead it. Often God is giving us markers. We're praying, Lord, what's your will? What's your will? And boom, one marker after another comes. Okay? One confirmation after the other. But sometimes Christians are so worried about blowing it and making the wrong decision that it's like, well, God, I need a little more. I need a little more. We don't write it across the sky in flaming letters. <laughs> See, that's what it's going to take for some people to make a decision. Now, look, we'd all love that. That would make things a lot easier. I don't think God's going to probably do that in your life. But he's given you one marker after another to tell you to do something. At one point, guys, you're just going to have to take a step in faith. Again, the steps of a good man or woman are ordered by the Lord. If your heart's right, you want to do God's will, then don't worry about it. You know, Let God give you confirmation. And then at one point, you're going to have to take a step in faith. Oh, but what if it's not the Holy Spirit? Well, look, if you step off the path God is leading you on and make a wrong turn, He'll quickly get a hold of you, close the door, and get you back in the right path. Believe me when I tell you that. He's got ways of doing that. Remember one thing. It isn't those that have a tender heart to know God's will that get into trouble. It's those who kick the doors open that God has closed that get into trouble. The rebellious. The rebellious ones. The reason so many Christians get into trouble and reap serious consequences in their lives isn't because, this is the majority now, we're talking about the majority of Christians, who get into trouble. It's not be, I think 90 or 95% of the time, it's not because they don't know the will of God. It's because they do know the will of God and refuse to do what God has said. Now understand, like we saw with Saul, there are times when God is leading us and we don't even realize it. We're not looking for markers. We're just going about our day, okay? And we have our little routine, we have our schedules, we always you know, bring into our day. And we don't realize that at any given moment God could be leading us in a certain direction through ordinary circumstances to bring us to a point that he wants to bring us to, to have our life intersect with somebody else for his purpose. If you're like me, you get so locked into your schedule, any interruption, anything that takes you away from your schedule, it's like, oh, man, you had a flat tire. I don't have time for a flat tire, Lord. I got all these things to do. Oh, let me call AAA. Here comes the tow truck driver, you know, and gets out, and you start talking with the guy and find out he's wide open about spiritual things. Witness to the guy who gets saved. Now you're saying, praise you, Lord, for the flat tire. Now you're all excited about the flat tire because God used it. Didn't realize it at the time. That's how God works so many times. Be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know? Don't get so locked into your schedule that you lock yourself out of God's leading. Because you never know when he will open a door and an opportunity will present itself. And God will use you. 
So may God give us grace. Plan your day, go about your business, but be sensitive to God's divine appointments. People and situations that he will bring across your path for his glory, for his purposes. May God give us the grace to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying and hearts tender enough to obey wherever he's leading because that's an exciting way to live your life. Always being open to the leading of God at any moment. Because when he leads you somewhere off the beaten path of your daily routine, it's always going to be fruitful and probably exciting. And you're going to be thanking him for doing it if you're open. May God give us the grace to be open. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who is not a distant deity. You didn't create us and then retreat to a neutral corner. And let us run our own lives. You want to be intimately involved. It will let you. And Lord, give us grace to never walk through our day without bringing you into our day and letting you, Lord, direct our steps. We want your will, Lord. Even though sometimes we get upset because uh, the situation now is going to cost me time, time I don't have, little do we realize that this time has been ordained by you from the foundation of the world. Who do you want us to touch? How do you want to use us? It's what it's all about. While we're on the way, Lord, lead us. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.